to Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll finish our coverage of the Bachman book, The Running Man discussing chapters 42 down to zero. Let's start the show! With Amelia Williams as his hostage, Ben Richards is able to avoid being killed and bluff his way onto an airplane by threatening to blow up himself and others with explosives. With lead hunter Evan McCone aboard the plane, Richards is made an offer from producer Dan Killian, become a hunter for The Running Man Show. Richards considers it, but when he finds out his wife and daughter have been killed, he kills everyone on the plane but Amelia, sending her out with a parachute. He then pilots the plane directly into the games building, where Killian sits. Whoa. Heavy stuff. There's something that hadn't occurred to me till just now. Did Amelia make it? We don't know. We kind of assume and hope that she did. She jumped out of a plane with a parachute, but... She was like really hesitant and scared and in a bad mental state. I don't even know if she jumped out of the plane. I, it seemed like she got sucked out of the plane, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. There was like an explosive door or yeah. explosive hatch of some kind, right? It seemed obvious. Like, of course, she's, she's fine. Yeah. Richards went to a lot of trouble to preserve her safety to the extent possible and was worried about her and how she would fare after this ordeal was behind her kind of hope that there is a you know an after for her sounds like uh we've got our plot for the running man too yes the undeadening all right well let's talk a little bit about this um the story comes to an end here sort of quickly right we ended the last section with richards and williams heading up to some soldiers and now we get to see the aftermath of all that as richards bluffs his way onto the plane and the back and forth between him and McCone and him and Killian and and then finally the, the 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 finale here but let's try to put this all together and figure out what it means and one of the things that Killian calls out when they're having the discussion on the plane is that he thinks Ben Richards is screwed up he's like I told you Richards to stay with your people and that meant staying low to the ground and now you're up in the plane and you're around all my people so this is going to be your downfall and so let's talk a little bit about Richard's people. Who are they and, and what, is, what, what does that mean in this context, Jay? I kind of divided it into three sections or three groups of people. I think there are the obvious ones, the not so obvious ones, and the ones that Richard's wins over along the way. I'll start off with the obvious ones. These are the, the people in the lower classes, the, the poorer people like Richard's and people like specifically Bradley and Paracas who actively help him and also educate him and give him uh, something bigger than himself to fight for. Mm. These characters are obvious members of Richard's people for those reasons. They want to help him. They reach out to him. They support him. They're there to make sure that Richard's either causes as much damage as possible or can spread their message to as many people as possible. Right. The not-so-obvious ones are the ones that just kind of surprised me along the way. Like, 
the pilot and co-pilot on the plane. We we find out at one point there's a sort of an aside scene when it's just the two of them in the, the cockpit of the airplane and they're like, I'm kind of rooting for this guy. Yeah. I, I would like it for Richards to win the game. That would be great. And they're not so much like, I want this person to get all that money on all the prizes. I think they see something in themselves or something in society that ought to change or Richards represents all that is maybe the potential of all that could be better if he were to win. So like his success means society is somehow salvaged right. or, or, or improved. They might not have thought that deeply about it, but they're still rooting for his success. I got the sense another not so obvious one would be the media in this case. Mm. So Richards realizes that he's sort of in a in a hard place when he has his hostage and that it would be very easy for the network to just kill him in the hostage and say, oh, Richards did it or it was an accident or something else. And he, he sees that the only way around that is to get the media involved and maybe have them watching it, which was sort of a surprise to me because I didn't realize in the society that there was a free media. But uh, Richards is able to use that to their, his advantage. And maybe the media is not seeing Richards as somebody that they want to win, but he's at least a good story and will keep them on the edge of their seats in a way that is different from what the propaganda that the network puts out. Yeah, we, we learn at some point that there is still a Pulitzer Prize. Yes, so. he's going to win it. Gosh darn it. And then the there are the characters that Richards wins over along the way. One of those would be Amelia herself. And I think Killian. Richards' actions, both in his just refusal to lose, his you know kind of unstoppable survival instinct and luck and getting help at just the right times when he needs it, his willingness to keep pushing forward no matter how grave his, his injuries are. I think that wins over these other characters. Amelia Williams first just thinks Richards is a madman and is going to do nothing but cause her harm and, and things like that. And then comes to realize that everything he's told her has been true. And mm. he's not a bad guy. He's just in a tight spot. She has to make a decision at some point to buy into the truth that Richards has shared or kind of go back to like a more comfortable life that she kind of, that she had before meeting Richards. And she decides to stick with Richard's side. She continues the lie yep. that Richards needs her to, to, to tell so that his bluff can, keep, can continue. And that's a big move for somebody like Amelia's character. It would be really easy for her to say, he's bluffing. I want to go back to my easy life and be safe again. Yep. But she doesn't do it because she knows the truth now. Richards has won her over. And by the end of the story, when Killian offers Richards that job, I think Killian sees him as like possibly better, even better than McCone. The fact that he's eluded McCone, the fact that he hasn't, you know, that McCone has, uh, they're like at a stalemate on this airplane and Richard still has, has McCone under his control. He even wins over a little bit the crowd as they're out there. You get that sense that it's similar to what was happening in The Long Walk where mm. the crowd is almost a character. And there it seems like the crowd's there in hopes of seeing somebody die. 
And there's a little bit of that here, too, because the crowd knows there's action. But when the police start to turn, the crowd turns on the police and they start throwing rocks and saying, hey, let him go. And they're the ones who he's won over earlier. And if you remember, those crowds probably weren't very different from the crowds that were in the audience when Richards was first introduced and they were yelling at him, get him, get him. And he was yeah. a scapegoat. But here he he's won them over in, in some way as well. Oh, yeah. And I think that's a great point. And it's interesting that like the crowd in the long walk, they want nothing but blood. And the crowd here, they definitely want blood, but they're motivated by different things. And we don't really know what society's like in the long walk. So we don't really understand the crowd beyond them as spectators. But here, we know a lot more about society. We know everybody is held down. Everybody is being oppressed. So it's a lot more likely that Richards will find sympathy if they understand that he could actually do something that might improve their lives. Right. Or even at least be different than what they've seen so far, which is people go on the running man and die within a couple of days. And he's mm-hmm. lasted longer, which I think gives them something different to look towards. So, But obviously the most interesting one that he wins over is Killian, as you mentioned. And let's talk a little bit about Killian, because after him being a somewhat main character in the first part of the novel, he sort of disappears in that middle section. But now he's come to the forefront and is really the antagonist to Richards more than any other one. McCone's listed, but McCone's not really developed at all. Yeah. Killian's always the one there. Killian gets more involved, as you said, and tells Richards a lot of things that really put Richards through a ringer, an emotional ringer that he's been through the physical ringer, but now he's through the emotional ringer of, is there a way out for me here? Is there a way to save my family here? Is there a possibility that I could win? What's what's that all going to look like? And he's really sort of on the edge of his seat as he listens to what Killian is going to tell him. And when you and I were planning this, you were saying, well, this is interesting because how do we know Killian's telling the truth about any of this stuff? So maybe we should talk about that. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, Killian is a master manipulator. He might not be the celebrated hunter that McCone is, but Killian is near the top of his organization, an organization that controls millions and millions of people by feeding them just the right information. So you got to figure, if you want somebody to change somebody's mind or convince them to act a way that they might not otherwise, Killian's somebody you might want to recruit to help you with that effort. So I start off being a little suspicious of like whether he's ever telling the truth. But Killian tells Richards that his family has been murdered in a random attack on his home. And Killian tells Richards, I want to hire you and replace McCone and give you McCone's job. So should we even believe him? This is a great way for Killian to, over the phone or however they're communicating, to basically get Richards to give up to just land the plane and then they take them inside. And then when the press isn't there and the crowds aren't there, finally dispose of him. Right. Tie it up in a nice, neat little bow for the network. Or he's being legit. Or this is all real. I don't think Killian loses either way. No. You know, as a producer of a TV show, if there's anything you want, it's better ratings. And if there's anything you can do to get that, it's to change your story in such a way that keeps the 
viewer involved. Mm-hmm. And what would be more interesting than saying, hey, we've got the all-time winningest running man become our new hunter. And that sounds interesting and would be a, an interesting way of rebooting your show in such a way. But on the other hand, the way he says is it is that we're going to have to fake your death and then we'll save your family. And so it doesn't quite make sense. So I don't know if that's an option because what's what would be the point of making him a hunter if he didn't have the fame that went along with it as a producer to promote that. So I could see why Killian's thinking this. And But on the other hand, to your point, he could have had him just killed at any point. Yeah. And and moved on and it doesn't really matter. So I tend to think that maybe Killian is telling the truth here, that his family is dead and maybe he does want Richards to place McCone because he feels like McCone didn't do his job in taking care of Richards as quick as he could have and now it's gotten messy. So I'm not sure. What are your thoughts? Well, I think that either way, it's something that we've kind of been alluding to here is that ultimately Killian is operating like an employer. He is the CEO of the network. I don't know if that's his title, whatever, but he's he's acting like the CEO. His calculus here is Richards is my employee. He started out in the role of guy who's running for his life. Now I want to give him a different job at the same company. Now it's guy who chases other guys running for their lives. Uh, it's just for him, it's just a promotion for an employee. It's just like you're doing a different job now. It right. has a better, better salary, better benefits. You know, people aren't trying to kill you. It's all, it's good. You know, it's a nice step up. The best benefit you could get. Yeah. There's a health plan instead of a death plan. <laughs> but it's just for Killian, it's just like, it's just business. Richards was bringing in dollars because he was a great running man. He can keep bringing in dollars as a great hunter. Mm-hmm. And so either way, Killian wins. The only way Killian loses is if, I guess, somebody flies a plane into his office. Yeah. Well, what's the chances of that happening? <laughs> I mean, practically zero. But all this leads me to just keep wondering, when I finish the story, I just was wondering, should Richards have taken the deal? I mean, we're talking about how Killian wins either way. What Richards did was suicide, but he could have said, all right, you got me. I'm in. Yep. I'll take the promotion, boss. Should he have done it? And I think, I don't know that there's an answer. I don't know that I, I want to even guess at it, but I love how this story sets that up. It leaves me with that question in my mind. Yep, one more reason why this is a a great book. Right. At the very least, McCone should have just killed Richards. Yeah. To save his job, because he was going to be screwed one way or the other. Mm -hmm. He should have shot him. But the Richards thing is interesting. So let's talk a little bit about Richards' motivations and how they changed over the course of this book in a fairly interesting way. And it made me think that despite being as, as a as an actionable character as Richard is, he's somewhat, maybe if not manipulated, he's he goes with whatever the last person told him. So like huh. early on, you know, his wife is turning tricks and his baby's sick and they need money. And he's just like, okay, we need money for the family. Let me go on this game show. And then when we get to the middle part of the book and he's taken in by Bradley and Bradley's family and Bradley's like, hey man, things are terrible with with the pollution and you got to say something about it. Richard is like, yeah, let me save the world. Let me talk about the, how horrible the pollution is. And 
even though I'm going to die, at least I'm going to tell everybody the truth of what's going on out there. Mm-hmm. And then once he gets up in the plane, he sort of dropped that entirely. And he mentions it a couple of times, like, oh, I'll pull out the filter out of your nose, McCone. But like, eh, he doesn't care so much about that. At that point, he's all out on revenge, right? His family's dead. He doesn't seem to care about the pollution anymore. It's just like, screw you. I'm going out and I'm taking everybody with me. I don't know if that's good for the character or bad for the character. It seems realistic for the character, maybe. But he's sort of gone through a change of of motivations throughout this novel. Yeah, I mean, he certainly has an arc. I think going from save the family to save the world is definitely a great progression. Mm. And uh, I chuckled when you said, like, it seems like Richard just believes the last thing somebody told him. It <laughs> it, it kind of is now that you mention it. I, I think that that's the direction to go in. And I don't know if the saving the world part falls away simply because he finds himself out of options. He He puts himself in a corner where there is no escape. If he were to take the deal that you know I've you know continued to ponder, then that means he he gives up on the family and he gives up on saving the world. He knows too much, and for him to to take the job as the new hunter means I'm okay with the status quo. I'm okay with the world being like terrible and everybody dying from the pollution and and all that stuff. As long as I'm okay, it's fine. And he doesn't make that. He's never even apparently tempted. But we don't know that he decided against it because before he can really make that decision, he also learns that his family is dead and he has nothing left to lose. Mm. And becoming the new hunter won't bring them back. It goes a little out of focus, maybe, in terms of where his character arc is going. I think it works and I think it makes sense. It feels real. Like, like I think. Anybody in these in Richard's situation would probably end up in the same place, although they probably wouldn't be able to aim the plane as accurately. <laughs> no, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't think I could find a building and a floor in a city. Well, if I didn't know how to fly a plane, well, especially when one of your eyes is swollen shut and the other one is blurring, and your intestines are hanging out behind you, like yeah, it might be yeah. a little bit hard to concentrate on. Like, oh, there's the floor that I met Killian on. Uh, a few weeks ago in a building i've never seen from the outside yeah sure to be fair to king it does tie together with where we were at the beginning of the book when there is that metaphor that we discussed of of richard's going up the building and getting to a certain point and then saying like hey what's above me and killian saying you're never going to get there and sure enough i mean he returns to the to, to that exact office and takes care of not only that office, but everything above them too. So yeah, that was some delicious foreshadowing. I got to yes, say it, it definitely was. So should we get into some dark tower thinnies, Jay? Yeah, let's do it. So the first one I have is that moment. King says, now the jet cruised across the canal seemingly held up by the hand of God. This isn't quite a dark tower thingy, but since we spent so much time talking about the hand of God coming down in the stand, and the Mm. stand is related to the dark tower, I figured it was good to point that out here, that there's a hand of God that's helping Richards keep that jet going into the final deus ex machina of of him meeting Killian face to face. Yes. Middle fingers ablazing. That's right. I mean... When you're inside this giant plane, I I kind of feel like the 
flipping the birds almost superfluous if (laughs) (laughs) but okay that's that's a good thinny i love it one thing that i wanted to call out as a as a thinny is that when richards boards this plane he walks through uh, the first class compartment and it's opulent to Mm. the degree to a degree of excess where it's got like burnished wood panels and deep pile carpeting and everything is soft and you know recessed lights and everything like that everything in it is beyond richard's like personal life experience because he he has lived in such a level of poverty but this first class compartment on the plane reminded me of the first class compartment in blaine the mono the quartet didn't spend much time in the more rearward cars in blaine they went right into the first class section because that's where Blaine invited them. And it was this super high-tech futuristic thing where Blaine could just manufacture ice sculptures and play <laughs> pleasant music and give them 3D, I guess, holograms to interact with. But it was just also pure luxury mm-hmm. because it's first class. And yeah, I saw the connection there. Yeah, I like it. That's a That's a good one that I would not have noticed. I was just sort of amazed that planes used to be that nice. When traveling via air was actually a luxury as opposed to the cattle car it is now. Mm. I'm going to pull, pull out a thinny that both you and I noticed, and that is that the airplane call number is C-1984. And I know you pointed out the 19, but I also noticed the 1984 and wondering if that was another sly reference by King to the George Orwell book. I suspect that that's what this is all about. That and not the 19. Because the, yeah, not the 19. He didn't care about that when he wrote this. <laughs> only, only you and I care. <laughs> but we've been talking about how this book has been a pastiche of sci-fi and, and dystopian stories. And Orwell's 1984 certainly fits that bill. So why not make the, the plane's call number C-1984? And the cool thing is you never see it spelled out exactly like that. You have to you have to take a second yep. to think about it. And only because I was looking for thinnies did did I like kind of really make the connection. Because it's like C19 84 and it's like <laughs> ah, I see what you're doing I, there. I got it. Another thinny I found was that there's a reference to the Morlocks from the time machine. Mm. Nice uh, little HG Wells there, but King has directly borrowed from that when he invented the slow mutants or the dark tower stories that's right so i figure that uh direct reference to the morlocks is kind of a reference to the slow mutants and therefore a thinny i read right over that and i had to have you show me exactly where that was because i couldn't believe i missed it but that was another good one and the final thinny that i have is king makes an analogy for the anti-aircraft missiles that are towards the end of the story that are tracking the plane. And this is kind of this weird fever dream that Richards has where he's picturing these missiles tracking the plane and tracking the plane. And he's getting more and more paranoid about it. Richards thinks of these steel missiles as steel, like rattlesnakes filled with waiting venom. Mm. And that made me think of the, the mini guardians who are like Shardik's helpers. Yeah. And how one of them was a snake. They don't have flesh on their mechanical bodies, but they're there to help, you know, repair him and and do things like that. When I read about the steel rattlesnakes, it made me think of those smaller mechanical animals that 
helped the Guardians of the Beam. That's a deep cut, but I like it. I did not struggle finding any yucking it ups in this part of the book. How about you? Yeah, th- that that's for sure. We've already hinted at some of it, but there's some pretty gross stuff. Yeah. Blech. So Richards gets gut shot and not just a simple gut shot. Like I think his whole sort of intestines start to, his whole torso sort of opens up. And at one point, the narration goes, he paused at the entrance to the galley and tried to gather up his intestines. He knew they didn't like it on the outside, not a bit. They were getting all dirty. He wanted to weep for his poor, fragile intestines, who had asked for none of this. He couldn't pack them back inside. It was all wrong. They were all jumbled. And then later on, as he's walking from the galley and around the cabin of the plane and eventually getting up to the the, the cockpit, his intestines actually snag on something and sort of yank him back and he has to crawl back and retrieve his intestines. And it's just, it's too much, Jay. It's just too much for me. It is. I almost want to tell you to stop. It's just, <laughs> it's just too much. I have two in my list, but I'm just going to self-censor the second one <laughs> to spare us and our listeners yet more references to intestines. But I'll, I'll share this one. The glass bubble of the Silex rolled up at him, a winking bloodshot eyeball. Ooh. Yeah, I thought that was pretty gross because it's a murder weapon turned horrible body part. Yeah, not great. Not great. We want to thank our patrons, as always, for supporting the show. Our patrons get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. And if you're listening to this, you're probably like, wow, I wish I could get more Running Man content. Jay, where can they get more Running Man content from us? They can get more Running Man content by tuning in to patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower and listening to our forthcoming coverage of the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, The Running Man. Whoa, that would be fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I love that movie. And I can't wait for all of our listeners, our Patreon listeners, to hear us talk about it. Yeah, well, if you want to hear our coverage of The Running Man, you'll want to get on board and sign up today to patreon.com slash Tower. And Richie S. didn't even know that we're going to be doing The Running Man movie and yet he joined at the gunslinger level so thank you richie s we appreciate it yes thank you and we also keep a running list of our top patrons on the support the show page of our website two guys to the dark tower came.com so if you want to see your name in internet lights <laughs> become one of our top patrons very good well it's time for fun stuff and there's quite a bit of fun stuff in this part of the book. Yeah, Sean, I think it's it dawned on me the other day that when we have a lot of fun stuff in an episode, that's all the evidence that anybody needs that this is a good book or this is a good story, right? Yes. When we're struggling to find fun stuff, it's it's not a good sign. So I really like this story. This is great. Not King's finest, but I really like it. The first thing I had in my list of fun stuff was Richards calls a reporter to get the media on his side, as you talked about earlier. And the reporter gets so excited. He says, Jesus, I smell the Pulitzer Prize. And Richard says, nah, you just shit your pants. 
<laughs> it's like he's almost that action hero level of stupid one-liners, but it works. Yeah, yeah, it sort of works. It's stupid for sure. Yeah. It's not cheesy though, so I guess there's the difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a good one though. I noticed that uh, when Richards is having his discussion, he says, that may go over in Shaker Heights. And Shaker Heights is an affluent suburb of Cleveland, which is not too far away from where I live. It's just weird whenever I see Shaker Heights called out, but it 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 has been in other pieces of pop culture before um, and continues to be. I think Little Fires Everywhere might have been set in in Shaker Heights and, and some other things, but it seems to be called upon when w- they need to get a real American affluent suburb around and, and Shaker Heights gets called out. So it was nice to see King pointed out here. Yeah, I know you always get excited whenever like something in the Cleveland area is in a. It's a very Northeast Ohio thing. We're very proud of Cleveland, and Cleveland takes a lot of crap from the rest of the country, and we always try to stand up for it. So, as you should. There were a couple of just really great lines, and one of them is the sea at the horizon was yet unchanged. It glittered blue and ageless, full of dancing points and nets of light in the later afternoon sun. Hmm. It's not so much that I, I shouldn't I shouldn't be at all surprised to find gems like this in a Stephen King book, but finding them in a story like this, it makes them sparkle all the brighter. Yeah. Because this is this is a miserable story. Yeah. And it's so fast paced and it doesn't have a lot of time for contemplation. It's just this very propulsive story. And King claims he wrote it in three days, so you wouldn't think he'd have time to have this sort of nice contemplative moment in the middle of the story and yet he pulls it off yeah the other cool line was a whistling half whispered screech issued from either side of his clenched mouth like stereo oh fancy yeah i like the like stereo i thought that this was a good line that sort of captured what was going on in the world so it was a little bit of world building richards wanted to reach out and turn the free v off not hear it anymore but he could not turn it off. Of course not. It was, after all, free. <laughs> I, I just love that. Wonderful playing around with words and their meanings. Like, like, well, why would you turn it off? It's there for you and it doesn't cost anything. And there's also like free and freedom and the lack thereof and can't not. And yeah, there's a lot packed in there just with that one word. And a little bit prescient with uh, King having little TVs built in the back seats of all the airplane seats. Yeah. Uh, I just realized that the last thing I have in my list of fun stuff is yet another line that I liked. This is when Richards was contemplating Amelia Williams' recovery. So what would she be like after this? When Can she return back to her life? And Richards pictures this as some kind of poem in his mm. mind, gives it a title even. And the title is The Place Where Two Roads Diverged, a pinpointing of the reason why the wrong path had been chosen, a carnival in dark mental browns. And then the rest, it just kind of just goes off from there. But it's just like a carnival in dark mental browns. That's okay. He's a regular Robert Frost. Yeah. Very nice. You know, we talked earlier about how Richard sort of knows about different characters or different parts of history, like Mick Jagger being from the Beatles. And 
He's aware mm-hmm. of s- certain pieces of pop culture, but then he actually knows a line from a movie from the movie Little Caesar, 1931. He gets it slightly wrong. He says, my God, can this be the end of Rico? And the actual line is, Mother of Mercy, is this the end of Rico? Uh, said by Edward G. Robinson. And it was voted the number 73 movie quote of all time by the American Film Institute. But I, I just thought it was like, maybe that's what they show on the freebie in between episodes of Dig Your Grave and Treadmill for Do- Treadmill for Bucks. They they show old 1930s black and white movies. So maybe mm. that's where Richards picked that up. But I'll put the clip on Twitter or in the show notes. So that or maybe it's just see. all Edward G. Robinson movies all the time. It's like Soylent Green. and <laughs> You could do worse, I guess. Yeah, exactly. That is going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we start the Bachman book, Roadwork, discussing the prologue and part one. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. I met Meatloaf at a record signing, and I called him Mr. Loaf. (laughs) It's the respect he deserves. That's right. It's Mr. Loaf to you. I didn't go to four years of Meatloaf medical school for nothing. (laughs) He's not Dr. Loaf. He's just Mr. Loaf.